December 7, 2007, about 10 o'clock at night, I was in my dorm room. The phone rang, and it was my mom. And all she said was, Wes, I'm here at the dorm. Come outside. And as I walked out of my, uh, my dorm room, coming down the hallway was an RA coming, concerned on his face, your mom's here. And so as I made that walk out to the lobby of the dorm, I did so very heavy, just knowing something horrible has happened. And I'll never forget standing there in the lobby of Lang Dorm, and mom, uh, mom standing there pulling me close, you know, you've got all these other just typical college things going on around, and right there in that doorway, her grabbing and, and saying, Wes, tonight Mimi was, was murdered at her front door. And it began a season where quite literally I began to wrestle with, in, in a very tangible and real and literal way, what do you do when death shows up at your doorstep? And the reality of that question is something that in light of, especially the last week, there are many asking. We've seen the absolute wicked and heinousness and devastation of what sin brings down in Uvalde. We've been seeing it play out for months in, in in the, the parts of Ukraine ravaged by war. Even today as we celebrate Memorial Day, it's a day where we honor those who have given their lives, which implies there's family who are grieving the loss of their loved ones, whether it's on things like national news or even things just as simple as the wedding I was just at where a wonderful young man and young woman got married, but neither father was there one because of abandonment, the other because of death. You see, we live in a world where there are all sorts of horrible, awful things, and without you and I control, often death, sorrow show up at the doorstep. What do you do when that happens? And there's a lot of questions that arise. Why? How? And, and I'll just be honest with you. The text we're going to go to today, we're not going to try to answer the question why or how. It's, it's not the time for that. But we need to be sure as, as grief is fresh, as sorrow is near, what we need to be sure of is who is our God actually in the midst of grief? And how does he respond to those who are grieving? So I invite you, church family, if you'll take your Bibles, we're going to go to John chapter 11. We're going to take a one-week break. We'll finish out Jonah next week, but we're going to go to John chapter 11 this morning. And as you turn there, let me set up uh, what's happened right prior to this. There in John chapter 10, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and, and he has just yet again very clearly claimed to be God. It has whipped the people into a frenzy. They, they're trying to seize him and stone him and kill him for blasphemy, and, and he's able to elude them. He and his disciples escape, and they leave Jerusalem, and they head out east into the eastern wilderness there in Israel. And so they're out east, and this is where we pick up in John 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and who wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So here's what you have. You have a specific man named Lazarus. He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. We've, we've seen Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke, and, and we remember the story of Martha being busy and trying to clean the house and, and making sure everything's nice while Mary sits there at the feet of Jesus uh, learning and and hearing and soaking it all in. It points in chapter two to a moment that hasn't been recorded yet in John's gospel. It'll be the next chapter where we see Mary come back and comes into Jesus with a priceless bottle of perfume and, and anoints his feet. And so here's this family out of Bethany. Now, Bethany is within two miles. We'll see here in just a little bit. It's one with two miles east of Jerusalem. You'd leave Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley, hike up the Mount of Olives, and on the other side, you find yourself in Bethany. And Lazarus is sick, so the sisters do what seems most logical to them. Jesus, they send word, Jesus, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus hears it, he makes a statement, this sickness is not going to end in death, but for God's glory. And if we stop there, you go, wow, that's great. But listen to what it says, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, he loves them deeply, personally. In fact, in, in all likelihood, they're, they're more of a family to him than his own family because his own family is ashamed of what he's claiming to be. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after, he said, after this, he said to the disciples, let's get up and go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? So understand their question. Jesus hears. The text tells us he loves them, and his response upon hearing is to do nothing, but to stay where they're at for two more days. And then after two days, he tells the disciples, hey, we're going to head back. And they go, are, are you nuts? They're trying, to, they're trying to kill you. Why are we going to go back so soon? And Jesus makes this statement in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because of the light of the world. If anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And he said, after, the, after this, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him. And the disciples, not really getting it, say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll, he'll wake up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go call him. Therefore, Thomas, who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us go also so we may die with him. Here's, here's what Jesus says. We've got to go. Lazarus has died. And I've already told you that God is up to something bigger in this moment. We've got to go. They think he's crazy for going, and ultimately they go, well, if he's going to go, we'll go too. We'll test it. We'll go. We'll go die with him. But Jesus makes it clear, the statement about the light is he's saying, there is still work for me left to do by my Father. The focus cannot be on the danger of the situation, but on the obedience of what God's calling us to do. So we're going to go. So Lazarus has died. The one who he loves has died. Now they're on their way. And look with me in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. 
Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So here's what he finds. Jesus and his disciples have made their way into Bethany. When, When they arrive in Bethany, what they discover is that Lazarus has been dead four days. And this is significant, church family, because there was thought in in Jewish life that the soul would hover over the body for the first three days. But once that fourth day hit and, and, and the soul began to see the body decomposing and rotting, the soul would move on to the afterlife with the Lord And there was absolutely no hope or possibility. It's not just that Lazarus has died day one. It's that Lazarus is good and surely dead, and there is no hope for any possible comeback. Jesus walks into town when all possible hope is gone. Martha, verse 20, therefore, she hears that Jesus was coming, and so she goes out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha goes out to meet him somewhere on the outskirts of town, and Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now understand her statement is not a statement of, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. It it really is a statement, Lord, I know if you had been here, if, if only you'd been able to make it, I know he wouldn't have died. Because I know, and even in spite of his death, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She's, she's at this point. She makes this confession of truth. And so Jesus engages her in conversation. He says, Martha, your, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha knows a little bit of theology, and she responds, well, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. She was of those Jews that believed that there would be at the very end of time a bodily resurrection of those of God's people. She said, yeah, I know that, Jesus. He's going to rise in the last day. I understand that. But then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, privately saying, the teacher is here and calling for you. So Mary gets up and goes quickly. Here's what Jesus says to Martha. Jesus says to Martha, he says, Martha, yeah, there's a resurrection, but I want to turn your attention away from what you think you know theologically to me, to, to a question that comes between who am I? He says, and I am the resurrection life. Martha, the resurrection is not some abstract theological belief coming. The resurrection is standing in front of you. The resurrection is a person, and I am that person. I am the resurrection and the life. And he turns it to her. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes, the one who faiths, the one who trusts who I am. Though that person will face a physical death, they will live. Death will be transformed for that person. And in another sense, they will live and never die because they will never experience the true separation that death brings apart from Christ. And he says, do you believe this? And Martha's, look at Martha's statement. It's not just a yes, it's 
Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. You're the chosen, anointed Messiah of God. You're the Son of God. I believe you're divine. You're the one who's coming into the world. She says, yes, Lord, I believe. Jesus takes this conversation and takes her focus from something abstract in the future and brings it down to a question of, do you really know who I am, Martha? So then we see Martha goes back. She tells Mary privately, hey, hey, Mary, the teacher's here. He's waiting for you. So Mary gets up. She hears. She gets up quickly, and she goes to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house consoling her, when they saw Mary get up quickly, they went out following her, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep. So then when Mary comes to where Jesus is, she sees Jesus and she falls, she collapses at his feet. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But unlike Martha, she doesn't say more. Instead, look at what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and that word for weeping there is the word for, it's really the word for wailing. It's sorrow fully expressed, tears flowing, wailing, weeping, it says when he sees her weeping and the Jews with her weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved. An interesting little word that, that actually carries with it the idea that he was, he was stirred with indignation. There was something stirred inside of him deeply with, with indignation. And that indignation stirring inside of him, it says deeply troubled and, 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 and moved. That word for troubled the idea that what was going on internally was, was showing itself externally. Those who were watching could see as, as he's feeling this indignation. And the question here is, what is he indignant at? Well, I think it's fairly point from the text. He sees Mary weeping. He sees the Jews weeping. He sees the sorrow. He sees the devastation of death, something that Every image bearer he has made was not originally intended for. We know from Scripture that death is the, is the, is the ultimate uh, child of sin. If there's no sin, there's no death, but there's sin, so there's death. He is indignant at the reality, the pain, the sorrow of what death has brought. There is a, a deep stirring of passion because of the sorrow of death, and it, it moves him externally. And so he asks this question, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see and it just simply says, Jesus wept. Now, it's not the same word. He's not weeping and wailing as Mary is, but it's a word that simply means Jesus shed tears. So he's watching this one whom he loves falling at his feet, wailing as he sees the devastation of death, as he feels indignation within him at the reality of, and destruction of death. The final enemy, as Corinthians says, he asks where they laid him, in, and he weeps. So the Jews who see this, their response at seeing his tears is, look how he loved him. That's why, why I feel so strongly that this indignation is, is towards death, because the way that it came out externally, all the crowd watching, when they see Jesus' response, the response at, at what is happening inside of him is, look at how deeply he loved Lazarus. Look at the sorrow that is there. And then a few of them went off and said, 
and said beyond that, could this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept him from dying? Meaning something along these lines. Jesus must be filled with regret because if he had only been here, he could have done something. And obviously, we'll see those Jews don't know the fullness of the story. So it says in verse 38, Jesus, now they move Jesus, they're coming to the tomb, again, being deeply moved within, being stirred with indignation, came to the tomb. That was a cave, a stone lying against it, and Jesus said, remove the stone. He, he sends this command, remove the stone, and understand how wild that is. There is a dead, rotting, decomposing corpse inside a, a sealed cavern. You're going to open that stone. Who knows what kind of stench is going to count? You're going to open that stone. He's good and dead. We all know it. He gives this command, and, and Martha says to him, Lord, but, but there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. So that doesn't make sense, Lord. And, and Jesus said to her, did I not say that if you believe, if you trust, you will see the glory of God? So in response to that, they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I have said it, that they may believe you sent me. He prays this prayer, not, not to ask, but to say, I want everyone who's listening, everyone who's watching to make no mistake what's about to happen, that they may believe and trust that you sent me. And when he finishes praying, he said these things he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. You can picture the scene. There's this cave. They've rolled back the stone. Everyone's keeping their distance. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound with hands and foot, hand and foot with wrappings, his face wrapped around him with the cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. What a sight that must have been to all of a sudden hear some stirring in the cave, to all of a sudden hear some moving as, as the man who you watched die four days prior shuffles and scoots and hops his way out. Can you imagine the bewilderment? Can you imagine the amazement? Can you imagine the reunion? Which is why it says right after Therefore, many of the Jews came and believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them these things. And we'll find out that while some believed, others saw this miracle, and their response wasn't belief, but their response was, that's it, we've got to crucify Christ. And this miracle leads into what will happen in the Passion Week. We walk through this whole passage. It's one of the great seven I am statements of the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? I am the resurrection and the life. What is the point in the passage? Jesus is the resurrection and the life from beginning to the end. He sits sovereignly over the whole situation. There is a plan. He goes about enacting that plan, and as the resurrection and the life, we watch him come and reveal who he is. We watch him come and display sympathy to those who are sorrowful. We watch him come and bring life to the one who is dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, church family. And because he is the resurrection and the life, we better be sure today that we know and are confident of that fact. Amen. He is not just 
the one who talks about resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. Did you notice with Martha, he's not content for Martha to just know a theological truth, but he, he presses her for a personal response. And understand, there may be friends in this room, there may be people watching online that, that the biggest part of what you hear today is it doesn't matter how much knowledge about the Bible you have, it doesn't matter how many times you've walked in a church or not, it doesn't matter what your family lineage is with Christianity or not, here's the reality. The Lord stands before each one of us and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? You see, there, before we can know and be confident he's the resurrection and the life as a believer, we've got to know that he's the resurrection and the life and salvation. Before we can even get to how, do we, how does he respond in the midst of our grief, we've got to understand that we are hopeless in our grief if there is not real salvation. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? This is his question to Martha, and it's the question to any who do not know Christ personally today. But church family, if you're in this room and you've been saved by grace through faith, then here's the question. Not just do we know that he's the resurrection and life, but are we confident of what that means? Are we confident that the resurrection and the life, we looked at it in Philippians, what is the whole hope for the ability to walk the Christian life? It's that we may know the power of his resurrection. That the life with which he gives is, is not life for a temporary moment, but is eternal life. That for you and I in Christ, death has been transformed. Though the sorrow of death is a separation from loved ones in this world, death for us is not a separation from the presence and character of God. Instead, death is the means by which God now brings us home to his presence in heaven where we eagerly await his return, where because he is the resurrection and the life, he will take our bodies that have died and he will raise them incorruptible and imperishable. Where we will be reunited with our bodies and we will live in the new heaven and new earth forever because he is the resurrection and the life. Do we know it? Are we confident of it? And if we're confident of it, church family, what it means is we understand that he is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign over life and death. And what we mean by that is not that is, is not to go beyond and to try to get into this, why this, or why that, but to say this, what looks like chaos to you and I, a world going crazy in anger, is not chaos to Christ because Christ is firmly on his throne. He's firmly on his throne. He is the resurrection life. He is sitting. It is what seems like chaos to Mary and Martha. What seems like chaos as Lazarus uh, breathes out his final breath. From Christ's perspective, there is no chaos. And because there is no chaos, because he is sovereign over life and death, we find that Christ is unafraid of death. The disciples say, hey, why would we go back? They're gonna kill you. And Jesus says, look, God has got a work for me to do. It's not my time. Instead, we're gonna be about following what the Lord says. Church family, if we really understand and are confident that he is the resurrection and the life, then church family, we must not fear death. Amen. We must not fear death. Because our experience of death, what does it say when Paul is there in 2 Timothy and he's facing the final trials of his life, he makes this statement, my God who will bring me safely home. 
And from a worldly perspective, Paul was carted out outside the city of Rome. He was beheaded, and that seemed the end. But no, from Paul's perspective, knowing that Jesus is the resurrection of the life, he was not beheaded. He was brought safely home. Are we confident? Are we trusting that our days and our times are in his hands? You see, if we're not confident that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then we will fall into a hopeless kind of grief. Before we can even look at how Christ responds to grief, we've got to know who is he. He is the resurrection and the life. The Jews don't realize it. Oh, look at his tears. Oh, he just regrets that he wasn't here. I mean, you know, he's healed the blind. He could have healed Lazarus' sickness. It's like they don't get it because they don't understand he is the resurrection and the life. If we don't understand he's the resurrection and the life, then when we look at the fact that he is the Savior who weeps with those who weep, all his tears will be is just mere sentimentality. Now we've got to be confident, and if we are confident that he is in fact the resurrection, the life, then what it enables you and I to do, church family, is that it enables you and I to rest in the comfort of his sympathy. Amen. To rest, do you see that in the passage, church family? Look, look with me. Do you see abundantly clear in this whole passage, understand the hardship, Lazarus really dies. Mary and Martha really watched their beloved brother lose his last breath. They really face a situation where he is no longer there. But did you catch in the text, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The love of God for his people is never in question, though the hardship of death is there. Do you see that? The love of God is, is never in question as you and I face a world of, of devastation, as, as you and I face, and when the moment that my mom walked in and said, Wes, Mimi's been murdered, and I began to pack my bags and hop in the car and drive up to the, to the scene, were there plenty of hard questions swirling? Yes, but understand that did not happen because somehow there was a, a, a chink in, in the love of God. For a brief moment, God decided that he didn't love me that much, and so something bad happened. Listen, God's love is never in question. We know it's never in question. We know it's never in question because God, God loves, the Father loves the Son perfectly, and the Father did not spare the Son's suffering. And if you and I are going to be disciples of Christ, we will not be spared the pain and weight of living in a sinful and broken world God's love is not in question. It's why it says in Psalms, he is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. It's why it says in Psalms 56 that he literally keeps count of our tears in a bottle. We've got to know, church family, if we're going to rest and, and find comfort in his sympathy, that his love is never in question. We've also got to see in the passage that he is indignant with death. By the time I was halfway through college, I had been to 15 funerals for family or family of friends or guys I RA'd for. I hate death. I hate it. I hate every news report that it brings up. And praise the Lord, church family. You and I belong to a God who looks at death with indignation. God hates death. 
And there is coming a day, and you and I will see it, where God will put death to a complete and total end because Christ has risen and the victory is won. You and I can be angry. You and I can be indignant with death because that is our God. He is indignant at death. Jesus looks at the devastation because death is not what he created, but is the product of sin. And here's the real reality, church family. When we realize that and we see Christ's indignation at death, we understand something about sin. You see, there's something about certain sins you can think maybe they're not as bad. Well, that, how does that one little look at that image? Does that really lead to death? Does that really? Listen, all sin leads to death. When we see tragedies like we've seen this week, when we, when we see ways that life is taken unjustly, what that is is that just rips the really nice mask of sin off and we see sin for what it really is. It's wicked and it brings death. Christ is indignant at death. We find that he, he weeps with those who weep. This forever amazes me. Did you catch that? Here's Mary. She comes, she sees Jesus. She gets to him and she just collapses. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would be alive. And do you notice Christ's response? It's not probably what many of us would be tempted to do, which is, hey, Mary, Mary, hey, it's okay, get back up. Let's dry your eyes. I'm gonna go call him out of the grave, come on. What does Jesus do? He weeps with her. You and I are called as followers of Christ to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. What's the basis for that command? It's none other than our Savior who weeps with those who weep. Amen. Who weeps with those who weep. So what does it mean for you and I if we're going to seek comfort and rest in his sympathy? What does it mean? It means, church family, you and I are going to have to come into his presence and fall at his feet in our grief. You and I are going to have to come in. Do you notice that? Mary hears the news, and she doesn't waste time. She gets up quickly, and she goes, and when she gets there, she falls at his feet. I think Mary may be the wisest human being in Scripture. I know Solomon's the wisest man, but I think Mary's the wisest woman, or the wisest person. Here's why. We see her three times in Scripture, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning, falling at the feet of Jesus, grieving, worshiping at the feet of Jesus, anointing. She's always at the feet of Jesus. Here she comes. She's at the feet of Jesus. Church family, there is, there is a challenge in the midst of our grief. How will God really respond? Sometimes, and I just find this even in my own life, there are times when I go, oh, okay, you know, I've got to come in with joy. I've got to listen. Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. You and I, as we face, as we face hardship, as we face sorrow, as we face, our response must not be to distance ourselves from the presence of Christ, but to learn to come into the presence of Christ, to learn to come in the presence of Christ, to fall and to just say, Lord, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to think, I don't know what to pray, and to just weep, to grieve, to be at his feet. I found a temptation in my life in the days after my, my Mimi's murder, I found a temptation to busy myself with good things, with ministry, with what I didn't realize is some of that busyness was trying to get away from the fact that there was deep hurt and pain deep in my soul. And the Lord had moved and, and brought various circumstances, and I will never forget just one night in my apartment sitting on the living room floor, just me and the Lord. And in that moment, just going, Lord, 
and just weeping. Don't know what to say. I don't know how to process this. And discovering that far from the Lord being intimidated by this, he weeps with those who weep. Church family, we got to understand tears and weeping don't mean we have no hope. You can, you can have tears and weeping and have no hope. But if we really know personally and we really are confident he is the resurrection and the life, then you and I can come before his feet and we can weep and we can tear, but we can do it as those with hope because we are weeping at the feet of the one who is the resurrection and the life. We seek to find comfort and rest in his sympathy. We've also got to hope in his glory. Here's the reality of of what you see in the passage, church family. From the very beginning, Jesus says, look, here's what's gonna go on. The sickness is not gonna end in death. It's not gonna end in a horrible means. It's not gonna end. Instead, there's, God is going to, to bring glory out of this. Instead, the glory of God is gonna be revealed. The, the, the Messiah will be seen for who the Messiah is. The Son of Man will be glorified. Church family, we need to understand, and this is a hard truth, that we are living in the in-between. If you and I are in Christ, this is not our home. And God is active, working out a plan of redemption, seeking to save the lost. God is using and working, and his his plan is to do so through his church. Anything that God does is ultimately for his glory in the sense that God is glorious. And our lives are not meant for our own pleasure. They are meant and intended for his glory and his purposes. And his glory and his purposes in, in a world where there is hard reality, where sin and brokenness are real. But God is at work. He never acts in a manner outside of who he is. He upholds his holiness. He, he works to, to reconcile. And understanding that our lives are for his glory, understanding that ultimately he is in control, ultimately he will bring justice and resolution to every injustice. Understanding that also means you and I can hope in his glory and still as we face sorrow, weep at his feet. He is working. He alone can bring glory out of sorrow. Our trying to rationalize and figure out and, 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 and put together this and that, it's not going to bring glory out of sorrow. Only his work can. It's why the psalmist says in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. You heard my cry. You pulled me up out of the merry bog. You set my feet on solid ground. You put a new song in my heart. And what does it mean that he's at, that he's at work in the glory? What does it look like when we hope in his glory? Well, when we hope in his glory, it means church family two real clear realities from the passage. One, you and I will come to know him in a deeper, more intimate way. Job, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, you can study all the way through. God never tells a single one of them why what happened happened. But you'll also find at the end of both stories, all of the individuals know and understand and have experienced God in a way that they never would have prior not only that, but as, as you and I come to know, as we hope in his glory, as we see him moving and, and working, as we find comfort and rest in his sympathy, what God will do is he will glorify his name in and through the situation as only he can. Now hear me carefully. Hear me carefully for those who are hurting. 
God will bring glory and honor to his name. It says that he will take all things and work them together for good. But here's the beauty of what we see the way Christ the Christ responds in this. He is the resurrection and the life. That's why there is hope. He is working for his glory. But even though he is working and even though there is a plan and even though that plan does not spare us hardship, he still gives us the freedom as human beings who experience the hardship to fall at his feet and to weep. And the danger is for many of us I'll never forget at the visitation of my grandmother, a well-meaning church member came in. I saw him, and you, you know, you don't ever know when you've lost someone who, when you're going to cry or not. And he came in, and he grabbed me, and I started to just weep. I was touched. And I'll never forget when he said, hey, stop that crying. Stop that crying. You know, you've talked about how God's working and in control. Don't. And I just remember, whoa, I'm not crying because I don't think God's in control. I'm crying because I'm sad. And because my God is in control, I can fall at his feet and weep. And here's the danger. When we don't fall at his feet and weep, you know what we don't experience? The comfort of his tears falling on the back of our neck. Paul says, the God of all comfort, 1 Corinthians, who comforts us in our affliction. And he says that we're to go and comfort others out of the comfort with which he comforts us. Church family, it's going to be a challenge as you and I live in a world where there is hardship and you and I are called to step in boldly and to minister to people. It's going to be a challenge to offer comfort to others when, if you and I aren't willing to really be sure and confident he is the resurrection and the life, to trust and rest in the comfort of his sympathy, to hope in his glory, it's going to be hard to, bring, it's going to, be hard to share his comfort with others. Instead, the danger is we might end up more like Job's friends saying half-truths and trite sayings that don't really honor the character of God in the situation. See, church family, he is the resurrection and the life. We can bank on it. He is the resurrection and the life. He is on the move at work for his glory, for his purposes. He is still in control. And as you and I face horrors, we can find a God whose love is never in question, who weeps with those who weep, which is why when my phone rang on August 21st, 2019, as I was sitting at a coffee shop discipling a young man, Bethany said, Wes, I, I, I think I need you to come home. Something's wrong with the baby. And we walked through the rest of that day discovering we had miscarried and lost that baby. That's why when my phone rang several months ago and my father-in-law said, Wes, I need your help. Aunt Vernie, who's, who's uh, Bethany's great aunt and very much like a grandmother, she was murdered in her home last night. That's why when those phone calls come and death arrives at the doorstep, why there can still be the ability to move forward and carry on because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and it's his life in me and because in the midst of the sorrow in the midst of the mind spinning and not knowing I can fall at his feet and experience the overwhelming power of his grace as he weeps in the midst of sorrow not as one who has no power but as one who will bring all of it to a glorious conclusion on that day when he takes his own scarred hand 
and forever wipes the tears from my eyes. That's our hope. And that's how we can grieve in hope because he is the resurrection of the life. And he, he weeps with those who weep. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful. God, there have been days I have responded well in grief to you. There have been days I have responded poorly. There's been days I felt near, days I felt far. But the truth is, Lord, I, you have never been far. Your grace has always been wrapped around. Lord, I am so grateful that you who are in control, Lord, you are the resurrection of life. Death does not win. But as we experience the sorrow and pain of it here in this world, you are the God of all comfort who is okay weeping with your people who weep. So Lord, may we not respond fearfully in the midst of tragedy, Lord, but may we know who you are and may we know how you respond and care for us. Jesus, we look to you in the midst of what has been a horrific week. We look to you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.